Welcome to episode 60 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week, now leveraging Zoom, I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Jessica Toth, Executive Director at Solana Center for Environmental Innovation, the nonprofit organization that brings environmental solution design, education, and consulting services to businesses and communities at every corner of the San Diego region. As executive director, Jessica returned the organization to profitability, significantly diversified funding sources, and more than doubled revenues by increasing contracted work, efficiently executing programs, and emphasizing high-value services. On another note, in this time of uncertainty, please remember we're all in this together. While being careful and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Jessica has taken an exciting path to Solana Center. She attended Cornell and MIT studying engineering and business, worked on Wall Street, the World Bank, solo backpacked through Asia, including the Tiananmen Square uprising, co-founded and led a software startup, Curious Company, and even worked with the legendary soul surfer, Rob Machado, to set up his foundation, creating the flagship environmental programs and co-authoring a chapter on sustainable surf products. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with Jessica Toth, Executive Director at the Solana Center for Environmental Innovation. Jessica, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thank you so much for having me. Can you talk about the motivating moment for you when you felt you had to do something to help mitigate climate change? Not necessarily the moment that I realized I had to do something, but was probably always passionate about the environment. But I had two girls, two daughters, and even when they were very young in preschool, got them involved in activities and started up a club with other parents. It was actually associated with Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots, and we would be mindful of the environment, animals, and community. And so we would do a week of some kind of beach cleanup or going to visit people in a residential home, and then we would talk about it. And even starting in preschool, it's actually how I got involved with Solana Center because I would have Solana Center come in and do a presentation with their watershed model, which is just a fantastic 3D topographic map of a watershed so you can see what the impact of pollution on land has in the waterways. So I wouldn't say a specific light bulb went on at one point. And it's funny because as I 
was preparing to talk to you, I realized even in undergraduate school, I had taken a thermodynamics course and learned about cogeneration. And at graduate school, even though I was not studying anything having to do with sustainability or the environment, which just weren't even subjects at the time, I did take an energy course in the graduate program. It was in a different program at MIT where I was. And that was in the very early 90s and late 80s. And they had solar panels and I got to learn a little bit about nuclear fission and fusion, topics I'd never thought about before. It was a foreshadowing of your future. I suppose. You mentioned your children already, but do you want to talk about why climate change mitigation now is very personal for you? I'd like to say that, you know, I want to leave a better world for the next generation. And of course, all of that is true on a daily basis. I see the impact in people's lives and their enthusiasm for doing the right thing. And to me, that has as much meaning as the long-term save the planet type of impact that I hope to have. We have over 400 volunteers at our organization. We've got 20 passionate staff. Probably nobody has been paid as little as we get paid in their previous professional careers. But as one staff member once said, this is the work that feeds my soul. And I know that sounds extremely corny, but when we have enthusiastic customers learning about gardening or composting or asking us how to recycle something properly, it just, it just makes your day. When you meet people that don't understand the science behind climate change or just don't believe in it, how do you communicate with them so that they have a better chance of understanding it? I think at heart, I'm an efficiency expert. I studied engineering and then went to business school. And I think to me, it's actually a very complex problem. There's no authority or single entity that's going to solve these problems. But at the same time, you know, there should be a tidy solution. There should be a closed loop natural system. And that's the case with fossil fuels, with water conservation, with minerals and nutrients that are in the soil. And that's a very natural way to tell people about what we're doing to our earth and the impact that we're having. It's human beings that have, for the most part, gotten us to where we are in terms of the degradation to the environment. And I think it's up to us to turn back the clock. You know, when only a very small portion of all plastics are ever recycled, it doesn't, to me, speak that we need to do better recycling. It's that we need to change our behaviors in terms of our reliance on disposable items. So understanding the closed loop nature of our world is probably the simplest way that I can explain the impacts of climate change and what we're doing to our earth. How has the coronavirus affected what you do and what your organization does? So first of all, we have closed our office for the most part, and we did that pretty much immediately. But one of the things that we do is accept different forms of waste for properly disposing of them. So we have a food waste drop-off program where people collect their organic material and we compost it on site. We also collect electronic waste, universal waste, which is batteries and bulbs. So all of that has been shut down. And that's an issue. We have people clamoring for us to open up. We did just this week begin accepting the food waste again with very strict protocols on 
and how social distancing and we're wiping off the buckets and that sort of thing for the food waste collection because people were anxious to make sure. People that we get involved in these types of programs become really quite vested and beside themselves if they can't dispose properly. I don't know if you're aware, but some of the haulers have declared that this is force majeure and they do not need to take recyclables and actually sort them. And it's actually going to the landfill. So there's large problems and it's much less expensive for them if they can dump it in the landfill. So there are problems in a broader sense that COVID is causing. But we're keeping a list of the types of setbacks and opportunities that this period is offering. Setbacks such as disposable shopping bags. The governor in California recently relaxed some of the restrictions on the disposable shopping bags. Some of the stores that I shop at will allow you to bring your own if you bag it yourself and you don't put your bag on any of their public spaces, but most are not. So we have some clever workarounds I thought were clever. Put the items back in your shopping cart. Then when you get to your car, you can unload them into your own bags. We go a step further. We we clean the shopping carts and then we put the items loosely in there so we don't take a bag or a box. And then when we get to the car... We put it in clean, recyclable bags that we have. But first, we wipe down every item to make sure that it's clean as well. Yeah, I think we need to be mindful of the health risks. They're serious, and it's not something for us to take lightly. But when this calamity passes, we're going to need to re-educate people. I think we've gotten to this stage, and not specific to the virus, of having such a disposable economy because it's so easy. So if we make it so easy and the behavior changes get rooted, it's going to be something that we need to work back. You know, my parents did not grow up with disposable plastic bags, but my goodness, if I suggest anything other than lining the trash bag with a plastic bag, you know, my mother has a very hard time with it. How do we get to this stage and how do we turn back the clock is, and I'm getting away from the virus issue, but that's something that is really central to the way that I look at the problems that are caused by climate change right now is, is the behavior change. And then how do we expect other developing countries not to enjoy the luxuries that we have come to expect in our own lives? But back to the specific issues with the virus, another issue that we're concerned about is food hoarding. Something that Solana Center is out front with is food waste. We can talk about it a bit further, but food waste in the landfill causes methane and nitrous oxide, which are very potent greenhouse gases, and the food hoarding, not to mention the social inequities that we have with regard to people who are food insecure, is just getting exaggerated right now. And then we have a wonderful program we started up about a year ago. A couple of our young staff came up with the idea, and it's called Green Convene. We loan out reusable chinaware and silverware. So if somebody's having an event, rather than using disposables, they can borrow ours and return them clean. Well, that's something that I think it's going to take a while before people want to borrow somebody else's chinaware. Not to mention that events have been mostly put on holds right now. So we're seeing the impacts. And of course, it has an impact on us from a business perspective as well. I started to get excited when you talked about the reusable silverware because I totally get that. 
And then I remembered the virus and I thought, oh yeah, I'm not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's going to be a while, but you know, everything from weddings to the Encinitas state of the city would be borrowing these and had interest in it. Smaller weddings, we have, I think, 200 pieces that we loan out, including wine glasses and cloth napkins and all of that. It's been used at high school music fundraisers. You know, it's just the typical type of event that you have where normally somebody would be tapped to go out and buy the disposables and put out trash cans and bag everything. Yeah, no, I totally I totally get it. It's a much better way to care about the environment is to reuse whatever we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about the Solana Center and what you do? Yes. So it's a fantastic organization. It's been around for over 30 years. Started in 1983 by an idealistic UCSD graduate who borrowed money from her parents, bought a truck and said, I'm going to start recycling. That's awesome. That is awesome. (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) And she is not with the organization anymore. She's in Massachusetts doing wonderful work. We've got wonderful alumni all around the world who do incredible things. So it was one of the first curbside recycling programs in Southern California, one of the first in the nation. It was started in 1983. Prior to that, I'm old enough to remember, but you would collect up your recyclables and take them somewhere and you kept them sorted. And when Solana Recycler started, you had the green glass with the brown glass and newspapers stacked up. You're smiling. You remember those days? Well, I have a specific story that I'm going to now tell you because you asked. A friend of mine back then, his name is Glenn Mictum. He used to put a cardboard box outside of his door with the word recycle over it. And people used to put their cans, their soda cans in there. And then once every six months or a year, and he'll probably correct me if he listens to this, but he would take it and he would have to drive all these cans down to this recycle center, but he would get a certain amount of money. I think they would weigh it per can or per pound. And then I think he would buy pizza with it and bring back the pizza for everybody on the floor. That was a good memory. Thank you. I remember on my bike taking the recyclables to some recycling center in Cambridge. I had to make sure that I balanced it right so we didn't collect too much with the housemates that I could still bike with it. And I don't remember getting money for it, but there's still buyback centers. And so Solana Recyclers was one of the first curbside pickups. And it's relevant for today's world. After about 10 to 15 years, the waste haulers saw that there was value in the material and so bought that business from the organization. Then Solana Recycler became Solana Center for Environmental Innovation and had been doing environmental education for many interim years. I came on about six years ago. We were the composting experts in terms of teaching composting, among other things, and teaching people about the watershed and about proper recycling. It's particularly relevant today because of the food waste issue. I think that it's very analogous to where we are in terms of getting ready for curbside pickup of organic material. So not just yard waste, which we've had for some time, but we're getting ready for food waste. Many parts of the state do have food waste curbside pickup, but San Diego does not. And we generate half a million tons a year of food waste in our region, uh, 1.6 million tons of all types of organic material, 
and the capacity at the beginning of 2021 for handling that material is going to be somewhere in the order of a quarter of a million tons. So we still have an enormous gap and not particularly germane to this podcast, but you may know that one in seven in the San Diego region are food insecure, one in five children. It's just unbelievable how much food we waste. And of course, food waste is not just edible food that's discarded. I mean, it could be lettuce ends and other bits. But when you think of the environmental degradation it does when it goes to the landfill, something needs to be done to divert that material from going to the landfill. So how did you get to where you are? You mentioned MIT. What happened between MIT and the center? A lot happened to me. <laughs> For me, I worked in high tech. I started up an educational software company, which went defunct. It was too early stage and had children. I had the kids while I was still running the educational software company. It was called Curious Company. And that's when I really started on this journey. I first worked, I had the opportunity to work with Rob Machado, who's a legendary surfer in the area, who's passionate about the environment, got his programs started running, and then the opportunity came up at Solana Center. So it's been a journey. Many people tell their own stories of how they got to where they are. And at this point, none of it looks like it could have been predetermined <laughs> by, by any means. That's the case for most people. <laughs> I think so. But the organization today has migrated from offering environmental education, as I mentioned, in the interim years after selling the recycling business, to very much now doing outreach education, but also consulting work. Our biggest clients are the local jurisdictions who may hire us to teach the community about composting, but they're also hiring us to consult to them on how to address state legislation that's requiring them to divert organic material from the landfill, for example, or meet certain recycling goals. What's interesting to me is that they continue often to think about their role in it, that is the cities, very specific to the legislation. So one piece of legislation may say, we've got to divert a certain amount of traditional recyclables. Another one says we have to keep organics out of the landfill. We're working with one city right now to bring that into one complete message for everyone, which is simply about less to landfill. And then having people understand what their role is in terms of sorting and making sure that it goes in different. People don't necessarily care that my food waste is going to be anaerobically digested. They may be curious about it, but I think what we need to tackle right now is a behavior change so that it becomes obvious what you do with your different types of waste materials. Somehow we've gotten to the point, I, I read somewhere that since the 70s, we've doubled the amount of food waste that we throw away on an individual per capita basis. And how did we get to that point? And not to mention the fossil fuel usage, which has just increased exponentially. You're making me sad and shaking my head <laughs> about where we have gotten. I remember a time when people wouldn't even consider wasting food. You, you right. took your leftovers, you found a way to use it. You would never throw food away. And I was fortunate to have my father's father live with us when we were young, my grandfather. And, you know, he would find bits of wire and he would keep collecting them into a ball and we'd have different craft projects or he'd find a need for it to tie two things together and even bits of tape. It's a very different world when everything's made of plastic and not intended to last for a long period of time. But I don't think it has to all be doom and gloom. I mean, you work with the kids. Children see their role 
and their opportunity to take responsibility, not even in the bigger picture, but even in the day-to-day. Kids' appetite for recycling properly and then understanding not to overuse the resources that we have, it's a very simple message that kids get. I think kids can have an enormous influence on the very busy lives that adults lead. And I think convenience and economics still trump behavior, still have a very heavy influence on behavior change. And until we can make it the obvious choice that does not require you to be mindful about what you're doing with your waste and to the resources that we have, we have an uphill battle right now. You mentioned that your grandfather used to save the wire into a ball. My wife's grandmother, we were just talking about that this morning. In the Depression, they didn't have very much. They were very poor. So she lived the rest of her life reusing aluminum foil, and she would fold it and take care of aluminum foil. And just this morning, we were wondering aloud, my wife brought it up, what will people of today that are going through this pandemic do differently because of the pandemic that people that didn't live through it, that are born afterwards, will wonder why they do such crazy things. Absolutely. And as part of that list that we're building about the setbacks from the COVID crisis is also opportunities. People are preparing more food themselves. People are gardening at home. I think there's a better understanding of an appreciation for the food that we eat and spending time together with family is not necessarily an environmental issue, but I think it's going to be a benefit that we'll see that may last for some time. I feel it myself very much. A lot more talking with my extended family on Zoom. I even get to see them, Mm -hmm. people that I saw once a year, I'm seeing every week now. So that is a a benefit from this. Mm -hmm. You brought up the term setback, and I'm going to ask about setbacks. You mentioned the software company that struggled because it was too early. Can you talk about different setbacks you've had along the way? I suppose, you know, my own setbacks, I actually took many different routes. I don't see them as regrettable setbacks. Let me just say that. I I see them as learning opportunities. And maybe that sounds corny, but in high school, I was fortunate that I lived in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is near Bethesda, where NIH is. And I got a high school internship at NIH. And I thought I wanted to work in a science lab. Well, that experience showed me it just wasn't the right environment for me. Similarly, I thought that I'd like to do international development aid and the perfect job would be the World Bank. And between my first and second year in graduate school, my summer, I got to work at the World Bank and realized that was much too bureaucratic for me. So lots of little diversions, I suppose. I learned a tremendous amount in the educational software startup, things that I use today in terms of management and leadership. But I would also like to talk about where Solana Center has come from. You know, the organization had this great success in getting curbside recycling started, then really was not clear on what their next move would be, it appears, and was run by a series of true environmentalists with not much business experience. And so when I came on, there really was not an understanding of the costs to the programs that we offered. We would get calls from places that would say, can you come to our school? And we'd say, well, we need to find funding for that. And they'd say, well, you always used to come without funding. Well, we were in pretty dire straits, actually, when I started six years ago. It was a question of would we fold? Would we merge with another nonprofit or would we make a go of it? And so as an organization, we've had a real 
So I'm turning this around to a success, I suppose. I was just about to make that comment <laughs> you're making it a success, <laughs> which is fine. It was dire. It was a serious setback for the organization. And at that point, the organization was over 25 years old, had a lot of goodwill in the community. San Diego has 19 different cities, and so many people continue to come up to us and say, I bought my first compost bin there. You taught me how to garden. You know, this community garden, it was started because Solana Center, or maybe it was Solana Recyclers at that point, you know, we took your course. And so it was pretty desperate times to make sure the organization did not go under. And we have survived, and hopefully we will survive the current situation as well with the COVID crisis. I think the best way to exit a setback is with a success, so you shouldn't apologize for that. (laughs) Speaking of successes, can you talk about other successes that you're proud of? Yeah, I would say that this has really been the most rewarding and the most challenging job that I've ever had. And as I mentioned, I worked in a number of different fields before. And so my successes are tied very much to the organization's successes. Early on, we saw that there was a need for this food waste diversion, and not just at the residential level teaching composting classes, but something needed to be done at a citywide level, a business level. And Interestingly, I was contacted by a fast food restaurant. It's a national chain, and they were going to have a new site in Encinitas, which is where we're located, but we work throughout San Diego County, and said, well, in other locations in California, we have food waste pickup. What are we going to do in Encinitas? And I said, well, there isn't any. Give me some time. How much are you generating each month? And they were generating three cubic yards a week, I believe. So I posted on freecycle.org. I don't know if you're aware of them, but I posted on, could anybody use any pre-consumer food waste? So it's lettuce ends, tomato, potato sludge, and scrapings. I got a petting farm in Lucadia. My goal was to keep it in a close proximity. I got a petting farm in Lucadia. It turns out because the onions were all mixed in with the other bits that the animals wouldn't eat it. But I also found Leech Tag Foundation, which was less than a mile away, had just bought 67 acres of farmland, and it was seriously depleted soil. They were purchasing finished compost from Valley Center at tens of thousands of dollars, bringing it in 25 miles away. So we got their compost going. I think the Salk Institute is doing their harnessing plant initiative there. Yes, there are all kinds of wonderful things happening at the organization now, at what has now become the Coastal Roots Farm. But we demonstrated the ability to have a closed loop system within a community, less than a mile away. This food scrap was going to be trucked. The nearest place they could have taken the food scrap to be composted commercially at that point that was allowable was 150 miles away. So they were going to have that either sent there or they were going to send it to the landfill, which was the most economic thing to do, or they could send it over to the Leech Tag Foundation. Because essentially, when you harvest plants, you're mining nutrients from the soil in the same way that if you mine aluminum to make an aluminum can, you've lost those resources if you throw them in the landfill. But turning them into a soil amendment, which is compost, you return it back to the soil. And that's part of that closed loop system that I talked about earlier. So that project took us probably a year and a half 
to actually pull it all together, getting the parties on board. We worked with EDCO, which is a fantastic community partner. They're the haulers, the waste haulers that service that area. They saw the potential. They wanted to see how it would work. And we were recognized by the governor as the highest environmental honor. And so this is one of the things that I'm most proud of. The previous honoree, the previous year, was the whole Disney resort. (laughs) So when they called me to tell me that we had won it, they said, well, we're looking forward to meeting your team. I said, oh, my goodness. We are a shoestring nonprofit. It will just be me. I will be paying for my own ticket. I will be staying at my brother's place in San Francisco. (laughs) I'm not bringing a team. The other element that was really important to me was it was the first time that food waste was recognized for that award. And it sort of put it on the agenda. Of course, there were people concerned with food waste. I don't mean to imply that. But at the state level, it was the first time that food waste diversion was recognized as an important element. And so that was very impactful. Another piece I'll just mention briefly is that I was recognized as one of the top businesswomen in San Diego by San Diego Business Journal. And the reason I find that important was not about me, but I think what I've been able to bring to this nonprofit is the importance of looking at it as a business and running the organization like a business. As I mentioned, I believe the organization received a lot of money when they sold the recycling business and then really didn't know how to use that funds to keep perpetuating and to remain financially sustainable. And that's really very important to running any kind of organization, of course. What is your vision for the future? Now, I usually mean around climate change, and I certainly want to hear what you think about that, but especially about how what you do impacts that vision of the future. Um, I wrestle with this question, and sometimes depends on the day if I'm feeling optimistic. I would like to see a world when resource management and handling is managed in an obvious way, that it's clear to people without having to be too mindful what we are doing to this earth and what we are doing with our waste. So that's something that's going to be very important. I wonder on a regular basis how we got to this point. And I think that's going to be really crucial to understanding how to turn back the clock in some ways. Our complete reliance as consumers in the developed world is not sustainable. And to then not offer that to the developing world seems, I can remember from the 70s and 80s as India and China were getting refrigerators and we're saying, oh my goodness, and they're getting cars. And we're saying, well, they can't because it's too heavy a load on the environment. Meanwhile, I don't know, in our neighborhood, we have two or three cars per household. And how can you say that the rest of the world doesn't deserve that? We have to figure out a way so that back to specifically organic material, uh, discarding your organic material in an appropriate manner is like discarding an aluminum can in your recycling for many people. I mean, we still have a long way to go. I don't know about you, but I drive down my street when it's uh, recycling day and I'm shocked to see the number of plastic bags in the recycling. People have bagged their recyclables because it's not clear what's to be done. This is not intentional. And so we have to clean up the message and make it really clear how our resources should be discarded and used. So what is your vision? Do you think we get there? 
Oh, it depends on the day. That's where I began. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you on my good days, because I also have good and bad days, I see us leveraging unused food waste, you know, organic waste, and I'm going to use the term wet fraction, you know, the wet part of garbage that is organic. And to use that in aerobic digesters and to get the methane out in a controlled way to keep it from going into the atmosphere. And then we can displace the natural gas that we're getting using fracking right now. When I look at the future energy picture, we are going to need some kind of long-term energy storage. And organic waste, when turned to methane, is negative with regard to carbon impact. It's better than solar, it's better than wind, so your backup can be super clean and you can leverage the generators that we have today. You can leverage those fleets, we have storage fields. We can fill those storage fields with gas that we get from organic waste. Absolutely. So we'll have anaerobic digestion facilities and operations in this area, a large facility in beginning of 2021 that's going to be run by EDCO, but it's only going to address a fraction of the waste that we generate. And so I completely agree. And that's part of that closed loop system that I think in some ways is so simple that children can understand it, adults can understand it in terms of our resource use. But at the same time, We talk about the first highest and best uses, for example, for food waste is to feed people in need, to feed animals. And given the capacity that we have, we're going to need to do that as well. And so I see it more as a problem to address behavior change and education and outreach and not as much as a technological problem. I think legislation needs to be involved. And then there's a whole economic issue that we haven't touched on, which is I've looked at the tipping fee, the cost uh, to send a ton of waste to our landfill, particularly in our area, it's very low. It's about $40 to throw away a ton of trash. I mean, to me, that boggles the mind. That's so inexpensive. But it's on the order of $95 a ton to process organic material into compost. So how do you make the case for a mom and pop restaurant who's got thin margins that they should, in effect, pay double? They're not throwing away a ton, but the the cost trickles down to them where they could slip food waste to the trash can or a landscaper, right, into the trash can and pay their share of $40 a ton versus do the right thing at $95 a ton for organics. And so we do need to figure out a way to build the environmental costs into the economic costs. And we don't do that successfully now. You know, everything from when we talk about closing the loop, we have a program that we're developing right now. It's called Food Cycle on Farmlands. And the idea is that we're going to take food waste from grocery stores that just naturally occurring food waste and take it out to those farms that are supplying the produce, keeping it all as local as possible and having them use that to create compost on site. The cost of that is going to exceed the cost of the farms actually purchasing a nitrogen-based fertilizer, for example. But the problem is that the environmental cost of that nitrogen fertilizer is not built into the purchase cost of it. So we've got enormous problems with runoff. We could be producing organic food. We've mined all of this 
organic material and minerals out of the land, and we're not replacing that. We're replacing it with a, a different type of amendment. And so I think there are economic issues. Legislature is really helping with that, where the state is requiring that organic material be diverted from the landfill. But again, if the economic incentive is not there, it's going to be very hard to make the case, especially after this COVID scare. You know, people are going to be really looking to cut costs as much as possible and asking them to do the right thing, pay up for service to have organics picked up curbside is going to be a very tough sell. So maybe I've just painted a doom and gloom picture. <laughs> I don't mean to, but I do think that everybody needs to come together. I think we're going to need simple messaging. If we can do that and everybody becomes part of solving the problem, I do see a rosy picture. Do any of the carbon tax proposals help? Because organic waste does produce methane, which is very, it's a really bad greenhouse gas. They are funding projects such as the anaerobic digesters and the composting systems that are coming in to place. They are not doing enough, in my view, to work on the behavior change that needs to take place and the long-term sustainable maintenance costs of running these systems. So... Yes and no. Yeah, I get sad when you talk about behavioral change because it's really hard. How has the coronavirus affected your long-term view of how this might go down? I think in part it will depend how long the situation continues. I think if it's over in another month, then we will probably resume the fight and the progress that we're making. If it's longer than that, I think everybody's going to be hurting and people working from crisis mode are not thinking about the environment. And that's just natural. A lot of the funding that's available right now for nonprofits is naturally going to those who are on the line supporting people with their basic needs. And that's natural and the right thing to do. But of course, that means things like supporting the environment may fall by the wayside. Yeah, that's my concern as well. Do you have any questions for me? I have a funny one. So I know that you do improv and I happened to hear on a previous podcast that you consider yourself a perfectionist. And I don't know how you square those two, because as a recovering perfectionist, I find it very hard to think on my feet without being concerned that I say precisely the right thing. And I actually thought that that was kind of a stand-in for what we need right now. We are making it up as we go, very much in this environment, in an almost improv way but we also have to get to a real solution. So anyway, I turn it back to you. <laughs> that is a unique and awesome question. It is one of the reasons that I do improv is because I have to let go of that part of me that is always trying to do everything perfect and just let go. And just whatever happens, happens. And my wife used to tell me during periods of time in my life when I did not do improv that I was so stressed out because I did not have that stress relief. And I think that's why improv specifically is a great stress relief for me because I have to put Lee away in order to do it and let the other Lee out. Yeah. So it lets me really work the other part of who I am. So you don't go back and look at or replay in your head pieces that you've done in improv and say, ha. Huh. I wish I'd come up with that line. I'll tell you when I do, it's a nightmare scenario. Like I can, <laughs> I stay up during the night and think, oh, I did that wrong. 
That's when I make a, if I make a really big mistake, I do worry about it after, but most of the time I don't make that big a mistake so I can let it lie. A lot of improvisers look at videotape of themselves Hmm. and it's recommended to learn, but I find that when I do that, it messes my head up too much. Like I realize that I'm probably not very good at improv (laughs) instead of thinking that I'm pretty good at it. So it's best not to watch it. And then I can just walk away thinking I did just fine. (laughs) I'm sure you do. And that's one of the wonderful things about the people that I work with is everybody has a different interest that they bring to it as Jackie, who does improv with you. And, you know, we have people who have worked as teachers in the classroom. And I think that actually speaks well to what's going to be needed in the new way of thinking is all these different perspectives that come together. We have people who've worked in science labs before, nothing to do with the environment, and bringing those different perspectives together toward one central problem that we're trying to solve is really key to solving the problem, many different perspectives. Do you have anything else you want to say? I think that's it. I will probably, unfortunately, listen to the podcast and wish I had said so many other things, but I have really enjoyed this time. Thank you. It's caused me to think about things in a different way. Wow, that's that's exciting. I hope it's helpful. If you don't have anything else to add, then I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. I'm amazed that you can do this. <laughs> let's, let's see if I can. Let's see. <laughs> At a preschool beach cleanup, learning not to pollute, it was based on Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots, another thing about preschool that you said was a Solana Center presentation about a model on watershed. Customers learning about composting and recycling, that's your goal A staffer said, this is the work that feeds their soul. It's human beings that took us here. That's the scoop. It's a natural system. There should be a closed loop. You had to shut down services because of the infection, but you just started up again with food waste collection. When you have a big (laughs) event, there's silverware abuse, so you'll loan out forks and knives for reuse. One in seven are food insecure. That's not in good taste. Somehow we've doubled yard and food waste. It's a simple closed loose example and it's totally tested. We need to get our organic waste aerobically digested. (laughs) Working with a fast food chain, it's one of the things you're proud of the most. You found the Leash Tech Foundation to use it for compost. By showing people how to garden, you show them how to begin. People remember because you got them their first compost bin. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) That was very good. Very impressive. Jessica also wanted to mention that she would like to work with corporations to be part of the climate change solution and would welcome cross-pollinating board opportunities with mainstream brands that take sustainability seriously and recognize their important role in influencing attitude and behavior change. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. 
In 2018, Solana Center's rain barrel distribution program saved more than 40,000 gallons of rainwater. They directly educated over 30,000 residents and businesses in the San Diego region and prevented 2.3 million pounds of organic material from being landfilled, which avoided over 245 metric tons of greenhouse gases from being emitted. Keeping organic material and the associated methane from landfill is critical to mitigating climate change.